Hey everyone, welcome back to it here in Apologetics. As always, we're brought to you by you with your support. Uh, today we are joined by Dr. Matthew Ramage. We're going to be talking about Old Testament ethics and dark passages in the Bible and all kinds of fun stuff. So Dr. Ramage, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? Uh, good, Zach. It's fun to be with you. Yeah, thank you for joining me today. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about uh, some passages, especially in the Old Testament, where it may raise questions for people. Is it read the Bible and kind of looking at these from like biblical lens and uh, Dr. Ramage did some work on this. He's written a book on this topic. Uh, but before we get into it, can you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm a professor of theology at Benedictine College, which is a Catholic liberal arts college in Kansas. I teach theology, scripture, Hebrew, a little bit of everything actually. But my research area, a lot of my publishing over the past decade plus focuses on the intersection of scripture and um, belief and scripture and science. And uh, for those who aren't Catholic, um, I do a lot of work on Pope Benedict XVI, who was a biblical scholar Pope. So most of my books and things deal with him. And a lot of the principles I'm sharing today, they're, they're all applicable for all Christians, but a lot of it's inspired by his writings. So that's mainly uh, my focus. But I wrote a book called Dark Passages of the Bible, trying to address the type of passages that I think you'll be interested in today. Yeah, awesome. We're going to be walking through these passages, and if you're listening live and have questions, feel free to ask those. We'll get to a couple at the end, um, but you talked about uh, just using this as like your area of research and being influenced a lot by like Pope Benedict in the 16th, I believe you said. Could you talk a little bit about like what you've learned and like when we look at these like passages in the Bible, like how to interpret them um, just through your lens? Yeah, okay. So, you know, I was working on my doctorate back 2006, 2007, etc., and I was trying to think of what to focus on. And I, I remember thinking there's just these passages that I never get good answers to. And especially in the Catholic world, what we'll do is a lot of people cite church fathers, which is which is great, it's, it's important. But the thing is, they didn't always address the questions we address today. They didn't have all the tools that most of them didn't know Hebrew, didn't know Hebrew, like with the notable exception of say, St. Jerome. And so I thought we need to look into this deeper, but also, you know, don't just quote the Bible. Don't just quote a church father. Let's hear out these modern objectors like at the time, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, the evangelical atheists, right? Who are claiming the Bible's not believable and our God is a bloodthirsty monster and these things. So I decided to tackle this. And um, what I ended up coming up with to inspire me was uh, Pope Benedict. He said, Look, you need the ancients and the moderns. You really need both. It's a both and thing. So yeah, let's look at the tradition. Let's interpret this in light of the way the church has always done it. Let's apply it to our lives. The Bible's living and active. But let's also look at this in light of the best modern scholarship and admit it when our interlocutor has a point. And so just for shorthand, guys, he calls this a method C approach. It's just a word he made up just to kind of make it concise. But Method A would be a general approach shared by the fathers, by the medievals, and by believers today, which is the Bible is true, it's inspired, right? It applies to our lives, reading it in light of its spiritual sense. But also, he says, we need to combine that with the modern method, historical criticism, method B, he, he dubs it for shorthand. We need a method C that takes the strengths of both, and each has weaknesses that we need to purify and be aware of. So that's what we're trying to do. I, I apply that to all kinds of areas. I working on a faith and evolution book now, but we're working on the dark passages today. And so I hope we can illustrate this with a few examples. Right. Um, 
so much great stuff here. So like when, as we look at these passages, like just in a general sense, uh, when you're studying these and trying to figure out like what's going on here and interpreting um, these passages, like what is what is like your general methodology um, kind of looking at these passages? Yeah. So following that method C, what I do is I want to understand, OK, like I have Verbum or the other version Logos Bible software now. It just spoils me. I didn't used to have until a couple years ago. Okay, so gone. All right. Let's start with the Church Fathers, Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture by IVP Press. Let's look at what they say on this passage. So I'll just give you an example. I, I wrote a, uh, an article on this past year for uh, the Word on Fire Institute. And it's Psalm 139, which is a beautiful psalm about being knit together in my mother's womb. You know, you're, I, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. But at the end of this psalm, as C.S. Lewis observes in his really cool book, Reflections on the Psalms, the psalmist just bursts out and says, I hate my enemies with perfect hatred. Oh, that you would smite them, O Lord. Okay, so he's saying these things. So what the fathers of the church say, I look up first, or I pray about it myself, right? But in terms of research, I look up, what do the church fathers say? And they say, well, who are your real enemies? The devil, your sins, you need to smite them, right? You should have hatred, you should not want them to be. Psalm 137 also, by the way, look that up. It's a good example of this. Um, but then, okay, let's look at this in the original context, um, especially if I may pivot to Psalm 137. They're in Babylon. They, they've been persecuted. They've had their temple destroyed. So we have to admit, as C.S. Lewis says, the hatred is really there. They hate their physical enemies. We don't want to whitewash that. But we can learn from them. It's better to be um, at least engaged than be apathetic. But we shouldn't imitate everything everyone in the Bible does. We need to learn from them. Um, so the Bible is there teaching us, but we have to look at it all in light of Jesus Christ. So there's a phrase I like to throw out there for people that the, like the Catholic Church and the Church Fathers have always used. It's called divine pedagogy. And a pedagogy is a teaching method. So ago, to lead, and pais, a child, to lead a child by the hand through their, their childhood. So the, the way that we kind of look at the development of the Bible is that the Bible is not a monolith, but it's the gradual progression of God patiently teaching his people to bring them closer to Christ. And then we really have to interpret everything as part of a progression to him. And he's the definitive hermeneutical interpretive key through which everything has to be approached. Mm. Great stuff. So what I'd love to do now is we're going to walk through four passages here and kind of put this method to the test um, in a sense. So the first thing I want to talk to you about um, is 2 Kings chapter 2. And there's, there's a story that is a, is a very interesting one where it talks about um, Elijah calling on um, two bears and they crush um, these boys who were taunting Elijah. So uh, when we're looking at this study, like, or this passage, I think for skeptics, you can be like, like, wait, this is in the Bible? Like, what's going on here? So, um, like, in your research, what are your thoughts about this passage? Well, that's a classic one, yeah. Um, I, I, I get asked this pretty often in class, and I, I, I'm glad people notice it. It means they're actually reading the text when I assign it. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, you have these two she-bears. I think it's just hilarious that the English translators are always pointing out they're female, even though it's irrelevant. It's just funny. No one uses the word she-bears in ordinary English. But at any rate, um, so yeah, it, it does give the impression that he he cursed them with these bears. Now, I mean, I've got my Bible on the computer here. So if I read this, um, I've got here, this is going to, I'm looking at 2 Kings 2, 23 to 25. 
So he went up from there to Bethel and some small boys came out of the city. Uh, this is the RSV and jeered at him saying, go up, bald head, go up, bald head. And he turned around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel and thence returned to Samaria. So there are a couple of things that are interesting in this from the, the method B, the historical critical perspective. Okay, first of all, think about original context here, the boys and bald head. This is just basic attention to the text, which I admit I'm not always good at. That's why I like to read commentaries. But bald head, if you think about Elisha or Elisha, depending on how you want to pronounce him, um, comparing him to his predecessor, who was very hairy. Uh, I've seen commentators point out, I think with merit, that this is making fun of him for being maybe less of a man than his predecessor, his bald head, first of all. And then the go up undoubtedly has an allusion here to high places, you know, pagan worship alt altars that people would build. So there's that. Uh, perhaps it's also even referring to Look, Elijah just went up in a whirlwind. Now you do something great. So there's a little bit of the, the context of him. Now, Elisha, Elisha has a double share of Elijah's spirit, right? Now, it doesn't exactly explain that, but that has been taken probably again rightly to mean he has the, the power to bless and curse. So there's a little bit of background to this. But who are these small boys? I think step one and like making sense of this is these probably aren't like my son is nine. They're probably not nine year little boys. This is quite likely a taunt on the part of the Bible to because these are probably the sons of the prophets, as they're called, the prophets of Baal. These aren't just innocent people, right? So uh, the fact that they get killed, it's probably not as if my nine year old boy just got killed by some she bears that someone's cursing. Like that's very important. Um, also, think about a, a mob of 42 people, okay? 42 of anybody, you know, even 12-year-olds. I mean, I'm 38 years old, but I think 42 12-year-olds could take me down. So you got to think here about self-defense, and the Christian tradition has a long tradition of legitimate self-defense of war. So I think all of that would be really good to point out. And I like to kind of throw out options to people. There's just some options to make sense of it. Uh, and then I think really this is part of the divine pedagogy, I think, that I like to bring in to this as well. And you know, not everybody will go for this particular um, in indication, but I really think it's important to draw on a distinction that Thomas Aquinas makes throughout his writing. And that is, if you understand how God works in the world, blessing, cursing, etc., you have to understand what he calls primary versus secondary causality. Everything that happens in the world in some way is God's will. He's the primary cause, as Aristotle or Aquinas would say. But we are his secondary or instrumental causes. So just to give me a different example real quick. You have a murderer. He pulls the trigger. He couldn't even pull the trigger without God holding him in existence and giving him the power to pull the trigger. But the, the evil, the sin, sin is a defect, right? It's in the secondary cause, the murderer. It's his lack of rationality, lack of love that brings about a defect, death, lack of life in the person murdered. So here's where I'm going with this. It's that at this point in time in Israel, they did not have that distinction. And this applies to a lot of things like God sending an evil spirit into King Saul or 
God in Exodus 4 going to slay Moses or um, any number of slayings, um, they just don't have the distinction yet of primary and secondary causality. So if you have a she-bear come, they know it's God's will. They've got that right. So it's providentially timed up perhaps, but did God actually directly will to go smite these people? Uh, I think a lot of interpreters would say it's not that simple. Uh, the, the God's working through secondary causes that happen to align. Another example, by the way, I was just thinking about this one last night would be Ananias and Sapphira from Acts, you know? Yeah. So in Acts the Apocalypse chapter five, they both get cursed and die. And uh, I had a friend ask me about this the other day. So I was doing some research. I just wanted to see what different people had to say on it because I have my own opinion, but I don't want to just go with that. And I saw a few different commentators point out, like, look on that one. You could very well say Ananias dies because he realizes God's judgment and he dies of shock. Uh, but you do get the impression reading the text that the Holy Spirit like directly smites him. And so I think that's another illustration where we've got to understand God works through natural causes and everything ultimately is God, but he allows us a share in his work. And I mean, there's so many other examples we could add to that. But anyway, that's the way I go with that particular passage. Right. I think there's a lot of great responses, and I think a lot of it will kind of fit well with the second passage that I want to talk to you about. Um, and this is that, the idea of the flood, Noah's flood. Uh, I was talking with a skeptic very recently, and they kind of brought up this flood, like you believe in a God who like drowned babies and things like that. So when we're looking at like ethics and like understanding the flood and what's going on here. Um, when you study the, the flood in your work with like how you interpret these passages, like what do you see going on here? And how do you relate that in terms of there being like a perfect God? Yeah, so I hadn't written on this extensively, so it's coming up in my next book I'm working on on uh, evolution and, and science and the creation narratives because I get this question a lot too. And so it's cool you brought it up. Um, the flood, first of all, this modern scholarship, you've got to know the modern scholarship on this. The church fathers didn't realize this. No, they didn't interpret all of it video camera, uh, thankfully. But if you understand, like we know now, we've literally excavated I've seen with my very eyes in different museums throughout the world um, documents like the Enuma Elish, which are flood narratives of ancient Mesopotamia that predate Genesis. Even if you date Genesis back to Moses, roughly 1500 years before Christ, these, these narratives are a thousand years at least older. And the Israelites definitely knew them. And so step number one is you've got to realize the biblical flood narrative didn't drop down from heaven. It's inspired but it's also an inspired response that comes through the cultural context they were living in. So just give you a couple examples. In the Enuma Elish flood narrative, which I like to assign to my Pentateuch students, they're like, Ramad, why are you assigning this? Just give me a couple days, guys. You can't understand the biblical one until you understand what came before it. Anyway, um, the flood comes because the gods basically get annoyed at the slaves they created, that is us. They created us to work for them, not not for its own sake. And um, so they get annoyed and wipe us out. And then one of the gods lets uh, uh, Utnapishtim in on the secret and he, he builds the ark. And it's clearly the same narrative that's been adapted uh, by Genesis. Um, so I think that's important to know that this is an inspired response. Uh, Pope Benedict calls it a myth and an anti-myth. And, and I want to mention C.S. Lewis again. You hear me quote him a lot. I just really like this guy. He's a good ecumenical figure for all Christians. So he says the, the Bible contains mythology, 
but it's the chosen mythology. And mythology doesn't equal falsehood for C.S. Lewis or G.K. Chesterton or Tolkien, which some listeners will undoubtedly be familiar with. It's a real but unfocused gleam of divine truth falling on the human imagination, says Lewis. So it's not meant to be a video camera, number one. Okay, now with that being said, uh, yes, the flood does attribute everybody, including children, being wiped out by God. No doubt about it. The text says that. So was the worldwide flood? Again, Christians, I know, will disagree on this, but the scientific evidence, I'll leave it to the scientists, but the evidence is no. But were there many local floods that could have given rise to the story? Sure. Now, what is the reason for the narrative? What, what unique thing did God reveal that people want to convey? Well, why does the flood come? It, it's sin, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's sin that precipitates it. The, the Nephilim, sons of God, daughters of men, that immediately precedes it. There are a couple of different Jewish interpretations of what precisely the sin is, but it's because man had become rotten to his core. And, and so that's a huge change that's made with respect to the prior flood narratives. And then I want to give a little credit to my wife, who's also a theologian. This is not a definitive answer. Again, these are tentative explanations, every last one of them. Um, there is no defined dogma on what the answer to these is. But um, I love her takeaway on the flood. I think it has a lot of merit. Um, if you think about the whole history of salvation, God tries everything to get his people to come to him and convert. So. He starts, right, he gives them a garden, it's perfect, um, the best situation possible, they send, they screw it up. He says, okay, let me wipe everybody out. Start with the good guys, they screw it up. Well, that didn't work, let's make them a nation, give them laws, doesn't work. Give them our own land, doesn't work. Let's dwell among them in the Ark of the Covenant, doesn't work. Let's anoint a king, doesn't work. Let's send a steady stream of prophets, doesn't work. Hey, let's take it all away and destroy it. Doesn't work. The only thing that really works is coming to meet man incarnate in Jesus Christ, because the real disorder is in the heart of man. So it's 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 not going to be solvable by a flood. All that is to say that killing those bad people, part of what the flood shows is that it's not them bad people. You're the bad person. You have original sin. So I think there's a deep theological point that at the very least is conveyed through that. And we can surely draw out more, but um, I, I like to at least say that much about this passage. Yeah, I think that's a, a great explanation. The third passage that I want to talk about to you is this idea of like the killing of the Canaanites or, um, you know, there's many different uh, interpretations as we can see in all these things, like whether it's the flood, there's so many ways you can look at these passages, but like uh, with the, with the, the Canaanites, you know, you can interpret this passage as someone might say, um, God's commanding genocide, like the exterminations of a people. Um, some people may come with a different interpretation, but like when you look at this, um, Dr. Ramage, what do you think about God and the Canaanites and all this fun stuff? Yeah. I mean, that's the classic dark passage. Everybody thinks about these. This is what the atheists, like this is the low-hanging fruit. They haven't actually read the Bible usually, so they don't really know all the passages, but this one's pretty easy to, to point out. Uh, you know, I like to do on this, as with everything, I like to give people options. I kind of show them, as G.K. Chesterton says about the church, he says, look, think of it like a big playground with high walls. The walls are the dogmas, the required beliefs, the creed. 
those are unchangeable, but there's a lot of playroom inside. And so I just think of a text just among many examples on this, like uh, I think it's Zondervan has this series. It's like four views on blank, three views on the counterpoint series. So you have these guys and they lay out different options. And the they titled that one particular book, I think Show No Mercy or something like that, because it's inspired by Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 2. You're to utterly destroy them, show no mercy on them. And what do they do? If you read throughout Deuteronomy, Joshua, they kill everything. And when Saul doesn't kill everything, he actually gets punished for it. So again, just war tradition, killing enemy combatants, it's not ideal, but there's nothing immoral about that if it's a just war. But most readers who are Christian understandably have an issue with killing of children. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a few different options on this. And I'll tell you kind of which one I more gravitate toward, but I like to show people here some different ideas. Uh, the classic one that has been around for at least 800 years with Thomas Aquinas is, look, divine judgment. We all deserve death because of original sin, period. Mm -hmm. So God can kill whoever God wants to kill. I'm kind of like, touche, okay, right? Um, also, in light of the time, the notion of corporate personality is that you as a child were guilty of your parents' sins. So it's understandable that they thought of it that way. Um, okay, I where I get a little bit critical of that view, in my opinion, and a, a lot of people agree with me, but a lot of people don't, is I'm not sure that view has accounted for God is love. I, I'm just not sure. It doesn't quite float a lot of people's boat, but it, there is something meritorious to it that no matter when God decides to cut your thread, no matter if you die in a car wreck tonight, you die of Corona, whatever it is, it's all part of God's will. Uh, is God sitting there individually smiting people is really the question. Okay, here's a, the second explanation I like to give. I think this is what I call the divine pedagogy explanation. That is, look, at the time, God allowed a lot of things. Um, he allowed divorce for hardness of heart. Right? He, he allowed these wars. And the people, the best they could do is attribute these things to God, the almighty cause, as if he directly willed the, the murdering. Because I think it actually is murdering if you're killing two-year-olds. Uh, or I have a three-week-old right now. That is murder, plain and simple, from a Christian standpoint, I think. Um, but at the time, if you give them their culture, that's what people did. And in fact, what the Bible does, um, it, behind me here, I have a little book that you can't hardly see it, Hard Sayings. Um, I like this little text. I blurbed it. He, he, Trent Horn, he went through and kind of did all kinds of passages. And, um, and on this particular one, I remember him pointing out that, like, you've got to think about this in the way that you would with the pro-life movement in America. You, you have to gradually work, you know, and you're not going to change the whole culture in one day. And you've got to understand that where people are, where they are. Um, so that's another explanation I like to give, like, hey, look, the Old Testament's just not perfect on this yet. Um, a third one is fascinating because this is the church father's understanding and it ends up overlapping with modern scholarship. So the church fathers thought this wasn't a literal account. Like when they see, like Augustine's principle is that if it contradicts charity, then you've misinterpreted it. And he would say, this contradicts charity. So Origin of Alexandria, for example, doesn't think this is a literal story. I used to kind of think that's copping out. But then as I read more 
modern archaeology on this, it turns out I'm a theologian primarily that does Bible, right? But the people who spend their whole lives on individual passages and books, what you end up finding is there's little archaeological evidence that that harem warfare, those complete all-out destruction of cities happen. So it, it's even possible, and according to a lot of scholars, highly likely that it was never meant to be literal to begin with. And within that, you could have like a subset. Was it propaganda on behalf of the Davidic Empire or like on the more positive take would be like its real point was keep out idolatry. Just like the story says we did of old. Look, whatever century this particular text is written in, you keep out with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength, this um, idolatry. So those are three different interpretations, and there are even more we could give. Um, but it, it just shows you the breadth of possibilities that we don't have to accept that this needs to be thrown out of the Bible or God's not credible um, mm. as Christians. One of the things I love about what you're doing is you're giving people a bunch of options. I think that's helpful. Like when I first um, kind of looked at these passages, I thought, you know, you read them and you interpret them literally and that's it. And you kind of go from there. But as I've learned to progress, it's just amazing um, how many different options we have as Christians to kind of look at these uh, very important questions. So the last topic I want to bring up to you is this idea of like biblical slavery. And there's obviously like a lot of passages that um, we could go to here. Um, but people will say, you know, maybe the Bible supports like chattel slavery and like Leviticus 25 with like um, the non-Israelites or like you could beat your slave with a rod, like things like that. So when we're looking at like this question of biblical slavery, like there's so much here, but like when you study these passages, um, how do you interpret them? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of meat there. I think you've got to go back to divine pedagogy, this principle over and over again. Like, look, this is what the culture did. That doesn't excuse it. But in America today, you get a lot of people who are like, let's throw away the statues of these guys from 200 years ago. Well, again, not to excuse things, but they we've learned some things since then. And this is part of our history. So the Bible this is our family history. Like, if you delete the history, you forget where we've come from and just how much Jesus Christ has done for us. Um, so with that being said, uh, people like, I remember James Dunn points out that like, hey, like, especially in the Roman Empire in the time of Christ, slavery was essential to the economy. It, you couldn't just up and just free all the slaves all of a sudden, uh, the economy would break down. And also, it wasn't the same sort of slavery, the abominable kind that we had in America that still has its effects today. Um, now, again, not to excuse it, but it's a, a method that they had to keep their society functioning. Uh, of course, the medieval ages, we had our own systems, right? And so, like, you've got to do what you've got to do to keep the society functioning. But I like to look at what the New Testament does to try to kind of emend this. Now, the Old Testament had already tried to limit the damage, such as slaves being able to own property and marry non-slaves and things like that, which are superior ethically to, say, the Code of Hammurabi in Babylon. But, you know, why doesn't, I think the, the deeper question underneath this as a sub-question is, why didn't Christ or Paul just change it all? You know, I think that Roman Empire economy is part of it. Just like, hey, you know, if you have something that Let's just get rid of taxes. It's going to cause society havoc all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. um, but let's think about what the like the slave language in the New Testament. Uh, 
one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible has to be Philippians 2, uh, the kenosis or self-emptying of Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he did not deem equality something to be grasped at. He takes the form of a slave. So Christ becomes a slave. Paul calls himself a slave, doulos, to Christ. And so he, they show that there is a type of total commitment that is compatible with um, with freedom. And so when Paul gives his advice to slaves, it's kind of funny. Here's your advice, slaves. It's not run away. You know, it's it serve your master with dignity. Maybe you'll get freedom at some point. But no matter what happens, this applies to us today, right? It, even if you're on food stamps and have no job and Corona ravaged this or that, nothing can take Christ away from you, like Paul says, right? Nothing. So there's that. And then also, Galatians 3.28, right? Like, there's neither slave nor free, woman nor man, all are one in Christ Jesus. So you see Paul laying the groundwork for, hey, I want you to all be brothers. And then you think of the letter of James and how some people were being told, sit at my feet and treated as inferiors. Uh, and even Paul 1 Corinthians, people were doing the same thing at the Lord's Supper. So it was a struggle for them, but he's exhorting them. Look, you have the societal structure free them if you can, treat them with dignity. And of course, the best and very little known short text on this is Philemon. You know, the letter to Philemon has to be the passage to go to, where Paul basically tells Philemon, uh, Onesimus, his slave, uh, welcome him back after he's run away. Um, and as a brother, now, it's interesting that he doesn't like command this per se, but he wants it done freely. And so you see the, the structure laid for that. And it is embarrassing how long it took Christians to get on board and like apply this correctly. We just have to admit that stuff, mm -hmm. right? I, I think of like in the year 2000 in the Catholic church, Pope John Paul II issued a famous apology at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem for things the church had done, like the Crusades. Yeah, okay, maybe it began as a legitimate just war, but dumb things were done. The Inquisition, I get it, but people were murdered. You know, and and even more recently, like Catholic Church, but this is every church and society function like pedophilia. Come on, let's admit that's terrible. So let's admit slavery. We took way too long to apply what Christ said. But the problem is not Jesus Christ. The problem is us. Yeah. So, yeah, we're a bunch of sinners. Why would you want to join us? Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I like an image from Pope Benedict on this. He was given a, a homily in St. Pat's Cathedral in New York City some years ago. And he said, if you look at Christianity, it looks on the outsides to people like dark stained glass windows. They're always dark on the outside. You have to step on the inside and live the faith, become a disciple. Give it the old college try. It, it's a sort of risk, right? You had to, you had to put your cards on the table, but that's when the truth of the faith opens up in all of its radiance and you see the glory. It doesn't mean it solves every problem in your life. It's not quite that simple, but it's only in living the truths of Christianity that you see all this. So I think paradoxically, yeah, you can provide answers. Like if someone's an atheist listening to this right now, it may help them a little bit, but really the only answer is you've got to get into relationship with Christ through a community and from there, you have the definition of theology from St. Anselm of Canterbury in the Middle Ages, faith seeking understanding. It's not to understand it all, then you believe, it's you accept Christ, and then you deeper 
deeper penetrate as you go. Right. Thank you so much for uh, walking through those four passages. I think for everyone listening, including myself, it helped a lot kind of just like, how do we approach these questions? But one kind of like general thing I want to throw at you and then we'll get, get a couple of live questions um, is someone may, as you read the Old Testament, just wonder like how, there's just so much maybe like violence or slavery and there seems like there's so much death. Like how do we like put this together with the idea of there just being like an all perfect, like loving, like creator of the universe? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I don't want to just simply say free will, but that's a lot of it. I mean, if you're going to have people, and I just compare this back to child raising. I have six kids. You've got to give them a certain amount of freedom if you really want to make them like yourself. And God the Father wants to make us think of screw tape. He wants to make little, little vermin like himself, the enemy does. So yeah, God wants to make us like himself, but we have to be free. And part of that is our human nature is to learn piecemeal and gradually and make mistakes. That's just the way the structure of the human person works. So could God have forced our hand and made us, um, you know, never have slavery and things? Yeah, but then we wouldn't be human. Um, and so if you really want love, you had to open the possibility of love being abused. And it, it really then goes back to the disorder of sin. I mean, it, it, it's on us. I also have a lot of illnesses. So I have lupus, this eye doesn't work, um, just all kinds of things, kidney transplant. I have a little heart pillow for my heart surgery here that I use to help my back. And, and you know, that's not necessarily sin. I don't think any of that is, but how you respond to it is. And so even like the situation of slavery or martyrdom that the saints show us, you have St. Stephen in Acts, he's joyful in dying. So really, no matter how much we're, we're hurt, whether you're enslaved or someone kills your family, how awful that is, if you have Christ, um, you don't live by bread alone anyway. So if you have the word of the Father, you should still work for social justice, and, but that's, that's, that's a gospel. You know, if you have Christ, you have everything. So um, yeah. Does God want to make us like himself? Yeah. Is that going to involve some bumps along the way? I think, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's great. Uh, we'll go to a little bit of Q&A here. We'll hit a couple questions on our way out. Um, the first one is from the programmer, which is, what does Dr. Ramage think of Dr. Robert uh, Outler's analysis that the Old Testament writers use fictionalized history to tell their stories? I mean, fiction um, writing, but with reality. Yeah, yeah, Alter's cool. I like Alter. And by the way, I like your setup on how that question appears. I've never used this uh, system before. So, but um, yeah, like the word fiction may throw people off, but is it, I think we need to start about the word literal for a minute. So mm -hmm. people misunderstand the word literal and use it in different ways, just like they use the word myth in different ways. So people use myth to say falsehood, like top 10 myths about Christianity, but that's not the way C.S. Lewis means it. He means it as an imaginative way to convey divine truth. And Literal, I would say, is better understood in the Latin sense of sensus literaris, the literary sense. For example, um, let's just take the easiest example of all, the creation narrative. God creating Eve from Adam's rib. Is that what happened scientifically? No. Okay. Humans evolved 200,000 years ago. This is a whole other bag of worms I just opened for readers. <laughs> but like, that's not, that's not how humans, females got created. Did man get created by taking mud from the earth? No, uh, there's, there's a whole lot of beauty theologically as to why it's written that way, 
to show the equality of the sexes and the, the uniqueness of man ha alone having divine breath yet coming um, from the same ground as the rest of creation. So we're united to creation. So if, that, if you want to call that fiction, that's fair enough. Um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church calls it figurative language. It, it, it's kind of a word that tries to say it's not a video camera, but it is conveying real truths. And so with, with regard to, say, the Canaanite passages, and I can't remember what particular portion of altar you're, you're referring to, um, Sir Programmer, uh, I like the title there, but it's, uh, yeah, can they be inventing, if you will, uh, quasi-historical stories to make a theological point? They can. Yeah, I mean, um, it, that's definitely within the, the realm of possibility. Um, on that. So if you want to think about the flood, that would be an example of that where you have a, a non-literalistic video camera. But I would tell you that it's kind of like an icon. It's If you look at a cool piece of art like a Van Gogh or pick your favorite artist, you can go deeper into reality sometimes by not painting the picture I'd take off of my phone or um, by not giving a transcript. The Gospels do this, for instance. Mm -hmm. So um, I love teaching synoptic Gospels where you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke side by side because it's manifestly obvious and people like to bait which order it's in, but they're, they're tweaking each other. They're altering the history. So like in the Catholic Church, we're big into the Eucharist. Well, Matthew and Mark aren't exactly the same, but they have a common Eucharistic narrative. This is my body, this is my blood. Luke and Paul have one that's very similar that shares the same tradition. And then the one that's in the Catholic mass isn't quite the same as those four. So they're all five a little different, which goes to show that it's not fiction that really happened, right? But there's a certain amount of literary license that every author is able to make. But Genesis one through 11 is its own literary unit. Um, you have to think of the conquest narratives and the all out warfare, that's own literary unit. And that's where you've got to understand the genre, right? The literary style of each biblical book. So I hope that it helps with your question. Yeah, that's, that's great. Thank you. Um, we'll probably have time for one more question here. Um, it's also from the program, which is, what does Dr. Ramage think about God sending the lion spirit to judge Ahab? Um, please repeat this point. I've never understood it. Yeah, yeah. So God sending the lion spirit into the prophets. Um, I, that goes along with it, uh, with um, him sending the evil spirit into Saul. So here's a little background. Early in the Old Testament, like other cultures, the Jews had what you could call a henotheistic view. They believed that there was one true God, but early on they believed there were other gods too. And part of the Old Testament is God gradually teaching them there's only one God actually. And that God is me, right? Yahweh. But um, they're going to attribute um an angelic force doing some evil thing like lying or murdering or whatever to God. By the way, this is similar to the angel of death at the Passover. Um, church fathers say that's actually Satan because they realize God doesn't kill babies, even if they're Egyptians. And so like there you have a true episode. I'm not sure how much literary license was going on there, but something is going on historically and then the attribution of this to God sending the spirit, probably the more sophisticated metaphysician as a Christian is going to say, God allows that to happen. He doesn't directly 
send evil spirits. He doesn't want people to get possessed or lied to. So that's where you get that secondary primary causality piece come back again. So if you think about that too, and uh, this is sort of a broader point, Zach asked earlier on just general things. Uh, and this, I know this is difficult for people, but when you have a quotation from God in the Old Testament, I don't mean to be offensive, but we're not Muslims. Like we don't believe this is the drop down verbatim quotations from God. So there's truly the word of God is conveyed, but it's always conveyed through the medium of the human author. So we have to think these are true human authors, not just scribes, but they make their own contribution. And I think that's all worth bearing in mind on this. But yeah, I deal with that a little bit in my Dark Passages book. I, I don't, I do more principles than I do like in depth into these, but I, I like that as an example that I think a lot of people don't talk about very much. Right, um, that's so great. Uh, so we're gonna come, we're around the end of our time here now. Is there any kind of like last thoughts, anything you wanna bring up? We covered a lot of passages and a lot of like uh, ways to like understand scripture and stuff. So there's so much there. So is there any kind of like last thoughts you have? Gosh, that already been about an hour. Um, yeah, these things always fly. So I would say a couple of things. I, I'd go back to that shorthand method C. We've gotta look at the original context. We've gotta ask how does it apply to our life? How is this true? and look at it in light of a divine progression, God gradually leading us toward Christ. And it may sound corny, but the old question, what would Jesus do, is not a bad way to approach a lot of these passages. Mm. I mean, if you're talking about the Gospel of Thomas, yeah, Jesus killed a little boy. But as far as the canonical Gospels go, Jesus is love incarnate. And everything is a progression toward him and has to be interpreted in light of them. And of course, pray with scripture, right? This, this should go without saying for Christians, but when you read things like the Psalms and you see them like hating their enemies, think about that not as how you should hate your other college football team you don't like, but how like, how can I overcome my own sins? And as Lewis says, what if you're the one who's the persecutor? Think about how you're the one standing in judgment. So always go back to bring it and how does this apply to my life? How does this, what is God calling me to do through this text? I think you're on the right track. Right. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Ramage. It's been so much fun. And I encourage everyone, if you want to follow his work or check out his books, there's a link to his website down below. So I encourage you to check that out on your way out of here. Um, and just thank you everyone for listening today. Really appreciate uh, your support as always. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us on patreon.com. So here in apologetics, your contribution of one, two, three dollars a month helps a lot. Um, Dr. Ramage, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome, Zach. God bless. God bless everyone. Thank you for joining us.